This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardi Nerds. Welcome back to the Cardi Nerds Case Report. This is a really special one where we get to hang out with not just a cardiology fellowship program, but a vascular medicine fellowship program. Really excited to bring on to the show doctors Joshua Zuniga, Ariel Schwartz, and Patrick Zaka. Guys, welcome to the show. Can you please introduce yourselves to the team here? Hey, everybody. I'm Joshua Zuniga. I'm a vascular medicine fellow at Emory University, and I'm actually going to be doing cardiology next. I'll be moving to USC for a cardiology fellowship. Hi, guys. I'm Ariel. I'm a medicine resident at Emory and excited to stay at Emory for cardiology fellowship. Um, it's so nice to be recording with you again. I'm Patrick. I am one of the UCLA Cardiology First Year Fellows. I'm also a Cardio Nerds Fellow and going to be sticking around as a Cardio Nerds Chief next year. So very excited about that and so happy to be presenting a case with Josh and Ariel, who I trained with back at residency at Emory. Ariel, Josh, Patrick. Oh my gosh, we could not be more stoked to be hanging out with you today. So really excited to be back in Atlanta, Georgia, virtually. Take us to your most favorite place where we can relax and talk about a serious case of vascular medicine. Yeah, it's good to be here. So today we are going to be going to Piedmont Park, Atlanta's largest and most central park where it's beautiful and sunny here. That sounds amazing, guys. We've heard so much about Piedmont Park and we're there virtually now. We'll go there in person someday. But while we're here, what do you guys have for us? So I'm bringing a case today of a woman who we saw in clinic. She's 39 years old. She has newly diagnosed hypertension and she's been taking about three blood pressure medicines for it, can't get it under control. And so she was referred to our clinic. It's been going on for probably a couple of months. And she said that she had some tests done at another clinic, but doesn't really know all of the results of that. Over the course of these past several months, for a couple of episodes, she had to actually go into urgent care or the ED with very high blood pressures and sometimes associated with headaches. Wow, Josh, she seems pretty young to have such high blood pressure. What's she taking for her blood pressure? She is young and she doesn't like taking so many medications, that's for sure. Right now, she takes hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams daily, amlodipine, 10 milligrams daily, and carvedilol, 25 milligrams twice daily. For her past medical history, really, she only reports some anxiety, not in anything particular for that. And then just these occasional headaches, which she mentioned, but she's also not really on any particular medications for that either. She's never had any surgeries and she has no known drug allergies. In her family history, she knows that her grandmother had, quote, an aneurysm, but she can't really tell us more than that. And then on social history, she's a real estate agent living in Atlanta. She rarely drinks alcohol, maybe just at special occasions. Occasionally smokes a few cigarettes, but nothing too serious. And then she denies any illicit drug use. Got it. So taking a step back, this is a pretty young female, otherwise healthy, coming in with uncontrolled blood pressures, and she looks like she's maxed out on three blood pressure medications. Is that correct? You got it. 
Yeah. And, and I just add actually here, like, let's take another step back. Here's a young woman under 40, not only on three blood pressure medications, but has literally presented with clinical hypertensive emergencies on multiple occasions. So it's not even just that she has hypertension that's difficult to control, assuming that she is taking what she is prescribed, but it's hypertension that is not even just subclinical. It's something that we're detecting on office visit after office visit, but it's something that's actually bringing her into the hospital for care and potentially her current symptoms of that whooshing and tinnitus, et cetera. Those sensations may be related to her hypertension. So this is definitely something that's raising a lot of red flags in all of our minds. Wouldn't you guys agree? Yeah, absolutely, Dan. And another thing is, I just wonder how long she's been on this three medication regimen. Is she adherent to this regimen? A lot of times we'll see patients who come into clinic on multiple blood pressure medications and they'll tell you, oh, I just take the amlodipine. So just important to know and document whether patients are actually taking three medications that will help us know, is this patient having refractory hypertension? Are they having resistant hypertension? What are they on? How long have they been on each medication? And for what period of time, because all of those are important and will factor into our next steps in our workup. This is a young patient who has hypertension. Sure, you can have young patients who have essential hypertension, but coming in with this clinical course definitely raises red flags. And we, when you hear the symptoms of headache or severe hypertension, probably got admitted for hypertension. I'm not sure. I'm sure Josh will also mention the hospitalizations if this patient has had past hospitalizations for hypertension. All of these will raise our red flags for possible secondary causes. I know things like pheochromocytoma will jump to mind, one of our favorite diagnoses. So all of these are very important in our management and workup patient for sure. Absolutely. So, you know, like Patrick mentioned, making sure that the patient is actually taking all of the blood pressure medications as directed is very important before considering secondary causes of hypertension. I think additionally, something to consider is, is this patient having their blood pressure taken accurately? Is the blood pressure cuff too small? Is it an accurate number? It sounds like in this case, she's having actual symptoms from her blood pressure, and it's been multiple blood pressures in a hospital setting. So I think we can rule that one out as well. Something else to consider is poor adherence to lifestyle and dietary approaches. So is this patient using cocaine? It doesn't sound like our patient is. So that's, you know, something we can rule out. And then is this patient eating a lot of salt in her diet? Could that potentially be contributing? It doesn't sound like this patient is. So moving on to secondary causes of hypertension, most commonly we think about primary aldosteronism, which can occur in about 10 to 20 percent of secondary hypertension. And then another common cause is renal artery stenosis. So if this patient was elderly or had a lot of coronary disease, atherosclerotic disease would be something to consider leading to renal artery stenosis. However, this patient is younger, so we may consider a diagnosis like fibromuscular dysplasia. Other causes include CKD and obstructive sleep apnea, both very common. And then like Patrick mentioned, less common causes, but arguably more testable causes, include pheochromocytoma, thyroid disease, and Cushing's. So this is such an important conversation. And I personally find the diagnostic evaluation of hypertension fairly challenging, right? Because hypertension is a very common disorder. 
increases with age. And the majority is primary hypertension. You know, we don't want to miss situations where there's a secondary cause for hypertension because in those settings, addressing the secondary cause can really help manage that hypertensive disorder in that particular patient, potentially even cure it and decrease the risks of secondary downstream effects down the road. So, you know, there are a lot of patients with hypertension. We can't go around doing an extensive evaluation for everyone. So just stepping back for a moment, it's important to consider what are the triggers for launching into an evaluation for secondary hypertension. And I, I want to just give a shout out to the 2017 American Guidelines for the Prevention, Detection, Evaluation, and Management of High Blood Pressure in Adults. And figure three is a great figure for just thinking about when to dive into these causes. So the conditions essentially where we might consider doing a more thorough evaluation is the situations in which the patient's trajectory and history and presentations don't really map onto the natural history for primary hypertension. So going through this list, is it drug-resistant hypertension, right? For this patient, the answer would be yes. She's on adequate doses of at least three antihypertensive medication, one of which is a diuretic. She's on HCTC. Two, there's an abrupt onset of hypertension. Usual primary hypertension, in contrast, is insidious and progressive. Three, was the onset of hypertension at an age less than 30 years old, so in a young patient, without risk factors for hypertension like obesity or family history? For exacerbation of previously controlled hypertension, again, not following the typical natural history of primary hypertension. Next, disproportionate end organ damage for the degree of hypertension, right? So essentially the severity of hypertension. In this patient coming in with multiple episodes of hypertensive crises, if there's end organ injury, retinal hemorrhages, etc., certainly a red flag and should precipitate a further evaluation. Onset of diastolic hypertension in older adults. You know, we do expect systolic or isolated systolic hypertension from stiffening of arteries, but diastolic hypertension is a red flag. And unprovoked or excessive hypokalemia and other electrolyte abnormalities like metabolic alkalosis. It should all, in our minds, trigger a thought for secondary evaluation. But then where do you start from there? And Ariel, I love that the first idea was let's differentiate resistant hypertension from pseudo-resistant hypertension, in which potentially the issue is non-compliance for any reason. You know, and we should delve into those. Like, is it an accident? issue? Is it an education issue? What, what are the issues? You know, maybe the patient has a hard time reading their pills and we have to think about accessibility and stuff like that. When we start thinking about secondary evaluation, also, while I agree with Patrick, pheochromocytoma would be a dream for me to diagnose. It's like that zebra that, you know, we'd love to find, but it's very rare. So even after deciding a patient deserves evaluation for secondary hypertension, probably we shouldn't just rattle off all of the labs and imaging studies to evaluate it, right? Like what are the most common causes? And so table 13 of the 2017 guide guidelines is a great table for the major secondary causes of hypertension. And this very second column is the prevalence. The secondary causes that have a double-digit prevalence include renovascular disease. And of course, the prevalence is different depending on who you're looking for. You know, like, is it somebody with hypertension alone? Maybe it's 5%, but hypertension and established ASCVD, it's higher. Okay, another double-digit prevalent condition, primary aldosteronism is extraordinarily prevalent and something we shouldn't miss. Obstructive sleep apnea, also very prevalent. And again, the red flags, the history, the medication they're on, how they're responding to different medications should all help us determine which secondary causes to evaluate for rather than just doing a sort of a shotgun panel for all of the causes all at once. So I'm curious, you know, in this patient, we've already met the threshold for considering secondary etiologies of hypertension and based on her demographics, what was the next step in evaluating the cause for her? 
Yeah. So all of those points were just spot on. You know, some of the important things I want to highlight in her case was that really all of this had kind of started within the last six months or so prior to her visiting us in clinic. Before that, as far as she knows, you know, no problems with her blood pressure. As far as we can tell, talking to her, she has no personal history of any atherosclerotic disease. She thinks her cholesterol was checked in the past and was fine, is how she put it. And also she has no family history of premature atherosclerotic disease either. I think these blood pressures being as high as they are, kind of the rapidity of onset and the difficulty to control these blood pressures on multiple medications were definitely all a little bit worrisome to us. So the next step, obviously, we want to examine her. So going through her physical exam and vitals, we took her blood pressure on both arms. It was pretty symmetric, 202 over 112 on the left arm and on the right arm, 200 over 102. Her heart rate was 61. She's afebrile and she was saturating 100% on room air. In general, she was in no acute distress. She appeared well-nourished, well-developed. Examining her neck, notably she had no JVD, no carotid bruise were auscultated. Her cardiovascular exam, she was regular rate and rhythm. No murmurs, rubs, or gallops were detected, and her PMI did not feel displaced. Her lungs were cleared auscultation bilaterally. And then on her abdominal exam, soft abdomen, non-tender, there was an abdominal bruise present on her left side. And then for her extremities, symmetric pulses in all extremities, two plus, and warm and well perfused. Josh, that was a fantastic, comprehensive exam and extremely helpful. Obviously, the blood pressure being so high confirms our suspicion. Someone who is on three blood pressure medications on optimal doses, still severely hypertensive. But I'd love to just touch upon this abdominal brewery that we mentioned and how much we really should put thought into it. We have this tendency to think abdominal brewery there is probably a renal artery stenosis. But what about if this patient was asymptomatic, didn't have hypertension? How common are these abdominal bruises in the general population or the general young population? So abdominal bruises are pretty prevalent and about 10 to 30% of young individuals will have abdominal bruises, specifically systolic abdominal bruises. Now, in cases where you have patients who are not hypertensive, don't have any symptoms, you don't necessarily need to work those abdominal bruises up because they have low sensitivity. So you do not need to do further workup. But in someone who has the clinical history is very hypertensive, this is something that would warrant further workup. And it would confirm my diagnosis even further when I see someone who I suspect a renovascular hypertension and does have an abdominal bruise. So just wanted to touch on that. Patrick, that was beautiful. And I think what you're getting at is essentially Bayesian approach to diagnostics, right? So in the general population in whom our pretest probability for renal artery stenosis is extremely low, then the presence of an abdominal bruit, while specific, would be minimally additive to our post-test probability of renal artery stenosis. However, in this patient in whom the pretest probability of renovascular hypertension, again, just going back to table 13 of those guidelines, is in the double-digit pretest probability percentages, the presence of an abdominal brewery in that context, which has a very high specificity, and I've read as high as 99%, especially if it's both systolic and diastolic. By the way, amazing pickup. I have to profess, I don't actively listen for abdominal breweries, and clearly I should. Then the positive log odds ratio for this would be such that the post-test probability would be very high for renovascular hypertension. And given this physical exam and this pretest probability, we should very much pay attention for that as a cause of her impressive hypertensive story. The other things to probably point out is that we didn't hear in the physical exam that there are cushingoid features. The lower extremity pulses are two plus, And so we probably don't expect significant coarctation, although that's something else to pay attention for, especially in our young adults. 
So, you know, this exam helps us in so many different ways, namely to start deprioritizing some causes and, and really now building a very strong picture for renovascular hypertension in a patient with a high pretest probability. Absolutely. Amit, thank you so much for those valuable additions. Now, I'm wondering, Josh, do you want to start spending some money and getting some labs? Patrick, you know I love to spend money. So we will get some labs. I think they are indicated here. On her chemistry, her sodium is 138. Her potassium is a little bit low at 3.3. Chloride is 104. Bicarb is 24. Her BUN is 18. And her creatinine is 0.93. Rounding it out, we have a glucose of 102. On her CBC, her white count is 6.2, hemoglobin is 12.1, and platelets are 271, so all pretty normal there. And some other electrolytes that we checked, her magnesium is 2.2, phosphorus was 4.5, and the rest of her panel, LFTs, ALKFOS, and calcium were all within normal limits. So in light of our concern for secondary causes of hypertension, there were some additional less than routine labs that we did check. So arenin activity was 19.6, which is high, and aldosterone level was 72.5 nanograms per deciliter, which is also high. We checked serum-free normetanephrines and serum-free metanephrines, both of which were normal. And her TSH was also normal at 2.33. So with those labs in mind, any particular diagnoses that maybe rise higher or are ruled out for secondary causes of hypertension? Josh, thank you for presenting that comprehensive lab panel. One of the things I was eyeing was the creatinine of 0.93, which is technically within normal limits. Obviously, I'm not necessarily sure of what her baseline was. Was she at 0.5 and is now 0.93? And the things I'm getting at is surely high blood pressure can progress and result in chronic kidney disease and elevate your creatinine. But also you can have a primary renal parenchymal pathology or renal disease that is also resulting in hypertension. So that's why I looked at the creatinine pretty closely. And also in light of the secondary causes of hypertension, what I was looking closely at was the renin activity and the aldosterone level, both of which are high. Now, in primary hyperaldosteronism, I would have expected to see an elevated level of aldosterone with a low renin activity. The high renin activity and high aldosterone level suggest to me two potential things. One, renovascular disease and two, a renin secreting tumor. So that is helping narrow my differential. Serum-free normetanephrines and serum-free metanephrines being normal help me exclude pheochromocytoma as well. And then the normal TSH helps me exclude at least overt hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism. And finally, the calcium level not being elevated at 9.4 helps me point against primary hyperparathyroidism as well. So a lot of secondary causes that these set of labs helped me rule out. So next we got an EKG in clinic, which was read as normal sinus rhythm. However, there was some evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy with repolarization abnormality with some subtle ST depressions in her lateral precordial leads and a questionable left atrial abnormality. So all of this kind of pointing towards hypertension with some evidence of end organ dysfunction and added a little bit more urgency to the case. Thanks, Josh. So just to recap, this is a 39-year-old lady coming in with multiple readmissions to the hospital for elevated blood pressure. She came in with a blood pressure with systolics in the 200s, diastolic in the 100s, and an abdominal brewery on exam. Her labs are significant for an elevated renin activity, an elevated aldosterone level, which makes us wonder about a renovascular etiology. We certainly cannot let this lady leave our clinic. What other tests should we do to further explore the etiology? 
All right, perfect summary, Ariel. So taking it from there, I am fairly worried about renovascular hypertension in this patient, like you said. And you're absolutely right. Because she's relatively young, doesn't have obvious risk factors for an atherosclerotic cause. You know, I think the classical teaching that we learn as medical students is that in a young woman with hypertension and we're concerned about renovascular hypertension, we should be concerned for fibromuscular dysplasia as a possible etiology, which we were reasonably concerned at this point. So we have a couple of diagnostic options to thoroughly rule this in or out. And it kind of depends on your center's expertise and comfort with this diagnosis. Typically, it's recommended to get some form of axial imaging. The best one would be CT angiography of the abdomen, particularly with the renal arteries. But you can pursue an MRA if there's some contraindication to CTA. However, renal artery duplex ultrasound is a reasonable first step for interrogating the renal arteries if you're at a center with enough experience managing patients with FMD. And we have a vascular lab right in our clinic with very experienced technicians. So we got a same-day renal artery duplex ultrasound. So our renal artery duplex did show elevated velocities in the left renal artery. And just for a little background, duplex ultrasound uses blood velocities to help quantify degree of stenosis in a vessel, where faster blood velocities are associated with tighter stenosis, or you can think of as a smaller tube causing the blood to flow faster. So we think of peak systolic velocity above 200 centimeters a second as consistent with significant stenosis, at least greater than 60% stenosis of that vessel. In her left renal artery, we were measuring velocities up to 306 centimeters per second, so pretty elevated. Additionally, we could see by color Doppler that the flow was turbulent and the right renal artery appeared relatively normal. And for everybody listening, you're definitely going to want to check out the show notes where we've included all of these diagnostic images, including the duplex studies and some of the later studies in the podcast. So in light of all of this, you know, our patient with an abdominal brewery, we're able to pick up elevated velocities in what we thought was the affected vessel. She's got quite uncontrolled hypertension and some evidence of end organ dysfunction with the LVH. We decided to go ahead and get her admitted to the hospital for an expedited workup. So while we're admitting her to the hospital, Ariel, do you think you could help me track down some records from her outside medical facilities? Yes, Josh, tracking down outside records is a huge passion of mine. Let's see what we can find out. Oh, here, we do have the CTA. So what it shows is that there is irregularity of the right mid renal artery with high-grade stenosis distally prior to a lobulated aneurysm, which measures close to one centimeter in size. The overall findings are suggestive of fibromuscular dysplasia of the right renal artery with underlying aneurysm formation and stenosis. But Josh, I thought you were talking about the left-sided abdominal brewery and the left-sided renal duplex. Ariel, thank you, as always, for your awesome tracking skills with these records. That is very helpful. And yeah, you make a great point. So this report sounds a little bit discordant from, one, what we're finding on physical exam and on the renal artery duplex. I should say we don't have the images to review ourselves, which is always kind of the best thing to do. But just based on the way this report describes the findings with the beating on the right and some stenosis and then aneurysm formation, possibly consistent with FMD, 
I will say visual inspection of these vessels is often very qualitative and it's hard to really characterize stenosis and aneurysm in affected segments. So I think that this report is definitely useful because it tells us that she does have some irregularity in her visceral vessels, but I'm not going to use it for quantitative purposes as far as, you know, does she have renal artery stenosis on the right or the left side? And I think we have enough information gathered in our own clinic that we should really pursue some more invasive testing. So ultimately, we thought more invasive testing was indicated at this point and would both be diagnostic and potentially therapeutic. So she was sent for a conventional angiography of her renal arteries. And I should mention here that conventional angiography is the gold standard in diagnosing fibromuscular dysplasia. In a case of multifocal fibromuscular dysplasia, the affected vessels show the typical beading pattern, looks like beads uh, on a string. And again, you'll want to check those show notes for some nice pictures of that. And there can be focal FMD where you may have only one area of narrowing in a patient with FMD. So conventional angiography in her was notable for the beating in the affected renal arteries. Notably, she was found to have an accessory left renal artery, which was supplying about 30% of her right kidney. And there was significant beating there and a translational gradient with an FFR of about 0.52. She had a left renal artery, which did not have a significant gradient. Its FFR was 0.92, but she did have an incidentally found saccular aneurysm on that side. And then her right renal artery had kind of diffuse stenosis with an FFR of 0.51. So typically in these patients, as I said before, really FFR measurement is necessary to characterize the disease severity or the stenosis severity, and visual inspection is not sufficient. And then balloon angioplasty is the treatment of choice rather than stenting as we would typically do in the coronary arteries. And the reason we typically avoid placing stents in these patients is that it's associated with a risk of stent kinking and fracture, which can cause more complications. However, the presence of a saccular aneurysm in her left renal artery is an indication for a covered stent, which she ultimately underwent. She also got balloon angioplasty of the arteries with a significant translational gradient, which is defined as less than 0.9. And then it's important to check that FFR again post-angioplasty to confirm obliteration, which in hers, it showed a normalization up to 0.98 post-angioplasty. So she's seen in clinic one month after renal angioplasty. Her blood pressure was 122 over 87, and she was off all hypertensive medications. She got a follow-up renal artery duplex, which showed normalization of all of her renal artery velocities and less turbulence as well. So Josh, you know, this is kind of interesting. You know, you guys found this left renal artery aneurysm, which is associated with FMD. And it kind of reminds me about the family history that she had had, that somebody in her family had had a cerebral aneurysm. And I wonder about, is there guideline or recommendations about a screening for cerebrovascular aneurysms in these patients? And or, you know, since FMD tends to be a system-wide issue, and I'm thinking back to my patients who have had a spontaneous coronary artery dissection in which FMD is a prevailing cause. And oftentimes these patients will have screening imaging in multiple vascular beds. So does the patient warrant imaging of other vascular beds, and namely for cerebral aneurysms given the family history, and especially with her having been diagnosed with FMD? 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Amit, because something that I was wondering about was, you know, how she was describing this tinnitus when she initially came to the clinic. So it makes me concerned that she has potential internal carotid artery involvement. So I definitely would want to see cross-sectional imaging of her head and neck. Josh, were any of these images obtained? Yeah, so those are perfect points. It's true that fibromuscular dysplasia can involve any vascular bed in the body. And in fact, our typical practice is anytime that we have a new patient with FMP or any patient post-spontaneous coronary artery dissection, like you mentioned on it, that we do get axial imaging from head to pelvis. Typically, again, CTA is the preferred modality of choice, but MRA is acceptable. So in her, really the only cross-sectional imaging that had not been obtained at her outside facility was a, a CT of the head and neck, which we did obtain, and it showed some tapering of the bilateral carotid arteries, but no clear evidence of FMD and no intracranial aneurysm. So we saw no obvious focal or multifocal involvement there. You know, this is just something we should absolutely emphasize. Here's a woman coming in on multiple antihypertensives, most likely trying to be absolutely compliant, having multiple hospitalizations and clinical encounters for hypertension, as we said. You detected an abdominal brewery, pursued a diagnosis for secondary hypertension of fibromuscular dysplasia, identified a lesion that was causing hemodynamic compromise in the renovascular system and treated it accordingly. And she is coming back a month after this angioplasty, effectively cured of, you know, this particular lesion. Obviously, there's more to it with fibromuscular dysplasia, as you just talked about. But then again, you didn't even let that go. You didn't high five and say our job is done. You investigated this cerebrovascular system, as we just talked about. And I'm sure you'll continue to follow her up, but really a remarkable job. And I'm so glad that this patient ended up coming to your institution so you can make the diagnosis and help her out and really do a good job with her symptoms and overall condition. So kudos to you all. Really impressive. I think we're definitely at a point where we can high five each other and say job well done. And also really great to see the care this patient received. Josh, it's not often that we have a vascular medicine fellow on the podcast. You've done internal medicine residency training. You're a vascular medicine fellow now, and you're going to go on to become a cardiology fellow. Would you mind just speaking a bit about your decision to go into vascular medicine and how you see that in meshing with your training in cardiology down the road? Absolutely. I'd love to. So my interest in vascular medicine came kind of early on as an internal medicine resident and dealing with so many patients who suffer from peripheral vascular disease. Essentially, I felt that as an intern, there was more that I could be doing other than just sending them to the vascular surgeons and hoping for the best. So that's really what piqued my interest. And then from there, I found about how deep the field of vascular medicine can be, how many, frankly, interesting and amazing conditions there are. And it's really one of those things that as you learn more and more about the field, learn more and more about new disease states, we don't know what we don't see and we aren't able to see what we don't know. So as I've been learning about all of these new conditions and vasculopathies and kind of taking a, a new lens into all my clinical encounters. I think that it's going to fit very well in with cardiology. And I hope that more people get interested in the field and are able to enjoy it and learn from it like I have. Josh, I have to add that was beautifully said. Just wanted to take a second to thank you all so much. This is a dream for me to be part of the Cardio Nerds family and especially tying this episode to my beloved Emery and having two superstar residents and fellows in Josh and Ariel, rising cardiology fellows. It, it's such a privilege to be able to record this podcast with the both of you, just seeing you grow and train at Emery and seeing what you will become. It's just an amazing journey and I'm so excited for you. And this was, as always, Ahmed and Dan, so fun being with you guys as well. No, did that part. <laughs> it was so amazing to have 
have you as a part of this, Patrick. And I just have to say, what a what a upbeat and positive and optimistic ringtone you have. It very much matches your personality. <laughs> and now we are happy to invite Dr. Brian J. Wells to provide the ECPR. He is the director of the Vascular Medicine Program at Emory, and he's the director of the Vascular Medicine Fellowship Program. He is a very dedicated mentor, and I felt very lucky to have worked with him these past few years. Thank you so much, Ariel, for the warm introduction, and congratulations to the Cardio Nerds team for an engaging and educational discussion today. I'll discuss in a little more detail what we know and what we don't know about fibromuscular dysplasia. So fibromuscular dysplasia, or FMD, is a non-atherosclerotic, non-inflammatory disease that affects the arterial vascular beds, most commonly the carotid and renal arteries. It causes stenosis, occlusion, aneurysm, and or dissections in these affected vascular beds. It's more common in women, and the average age of diagnosis is approximately age 40 to 50 years. FMD was first reported in 1938 when a young boy presented with resistant hypertension in a renal dissection excision was performed and Ledbetter and Birkeland described an intraarterial mass of smooth muscle that was novel and peculiar at the time. And what they realized was that they had uh, discovered something that was later termed fibromuscular hyperplasia in 1958 by McCormick. And years later, in 1971, the pathologic criteria of medial versus intimal FMD was described. And fast forward to 2012, the first publication of the United States Registry for FMD was released. The prevalence of FMD is unknown. It's thought that it might be at least 1% based on autopsy data and perhaps even higher based on angiographic data from renal transplant donors and renal denervation registries. The cause of FMD is also unknown. We know that it's more common in women by a ratio of 9 to 1. We don't know how hormones are involved in the development of fibromuscular dysplasia. We've seen a dose-dependent relationship with smoking, but that's an association based on observational data and does not suggest causality. Multiple genes have been looked at more recently in terms of the etiology of fibromuscular dysplasia. We've recently discovered an association with a COL5A1 gene that's also associated with classic Ehlers-Danlos and the factor 1 gene, PHACTR1 gene, that's also associated with arterial dissections, migraines, as well as fibromuscular dysplasia. 7 to 11% of cases are familial based on angiographic data. The classification of FMD was also discussed with our patient's case. There's a multifocal and focal FMD. Multifocal FMD is the more common type that is termed medial fibroplasia which is the most common type of histologic manifestation. And it's what causes your classic alternating areas of dilatation and constriction, which causes your beads on a string pattern that is seen on angiography. Alternatively, focal FMD, the most common histology is intimal fibroplasia, and this leads to a focal concentric or tubular stenosis. Both types can cause aneurysm dissection and vessel tortuosity of medium-sized arteries in the affected vascular beds. In terms of symptoms, Hypertension and headache are the most common presenting symptoms, over 50% for both. Pulsatile tinnitus is another 
common presenting symptom in up to 27% of FMD patients and should always be asked in the history. Less commonly, a more dramatic presentation can occur, such as a stroke or an arterial dissection. Renal artery FMD, as was discussed in our case, most commonly presents with hypertension in a younger patient. An abdominal bruit is a presenting sign in 9%. Less commonly, a patient may present with a renal artery dissection. Progression to end-stage renal disease is uncommon, and headaches are oftentimes associated with renal artery FMD as well. Carotid FMD may be presenting with a asymptomatic bruit, a headache, pulsatile tinnitus, neck pain or dizziness, and less commonly, a TIA or arterial dissection. It's also important to note that up to 10% of patients, particularly with carotid FMD, may have an intracranial aneurysm. In terms of other vascular beds, coronary artery FMD has also been a, a recent area of interest, particularly in the literature. We've recently identified the association between spontaneous coronary artery dissections and FMD. Historically, it was thought that pregnancy was the most common cause of spontaneous coronary artery dissections or SCAD, and it is still a common cause. But we now that know that perhaps up to 50 to 80% of SCAD is caused by an underlying arteriopathy, which is fibromuscular dysplasia. SCAD, as you know, is a common presentation for female patients under the age of 50 for myocardial infarction. The prevalence may be up to 4% of patients with acute coronary syndrome. 3% of FMD patients have spontaneous coronary artery dissections in their lifetime. In terms of other manifestations of FMD, 20% of FMD patients will have an aneurysm in avascular bed, and 20 to 40% will have either an aneurysm or a dissection in avascular bed. So based on these findings, we now recommend that all patients with a known or presumptive diagnosis of fibromuscular dysplasia obtain a one-time scan of the brain to pelvis with preferably a CTA or an MRA to look for fibromuscular dysplasia or occult aneurysm or dissection. And this was also discussed by our fellows in the case discussion earlier. It's also important to consider the differential diagnosis when you see findings suggestive of fibromuscular dysplasia. Other arteriopathies such as vascular Ehlers-Danlos or Loestietz and sometimes Marfan syndrome. Vasospasm can also mimic fibromuscular dysplasia and cause abnormalities to the arterial vascular beds and also vasculitis, such as giant cell tachyasus and polyarteritis nodosa. So in conclusion, FMD is not an uncommon disease. However, the cause, prevalence, and genetics at this point are unknown. Early recognition, diagnosis, and surveillance should be emphasized. Carotid and renal arteries are the most common vascular beds involved. And remember, a head-to-pelvis CTA or MRA is recommended in patients with a presumptive diagnosis of FMD. And thank you so much again for your attention and the great discussion we had today.